Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Long before the NFL, there were several professional football leagues and teams spread across the USA, mostly in the eastern part of the country with teams in Ohio, Pennsylvania, New York, New Jersey, and a few other places. They were just as competitive as professional football is today. In fact, in some instances, maybe even more so. Well, one of those teams just might be the most dominant, the greatest to ever suit up. And we're going to talk about that team with Darren Hayes, author of the book, The World's Greatest Gridiron Team, next on Sports Forgotten Heroes. This is Sports Forgotten Heroes, a tribute to the stars who shaped the games we love to watch and the games we love to play. Stars who provided us with many thrills, but when their time was up, they faded away. We'll take a look back at their spectacular careers, their moments of fame, even if it was just for one season or just one game. And now, here's your host, Warren Rogan. When you think about the most dominant teams in the history of professional football, some that immediately come to mind are the New England Patriots of 2007, who went 16-0, but ultimately lost to the New York Giants in the Super Bowl. Of course, between 2001 and 2019, the Patriots went to nine Super Bowls and won six. The doomsday defenses of the Dallas Cowboys of the 1970s are another dominant team. The Steel Curtain of the Pittsburgh Steelers. The no-name defense that led the Miami Dolphins to a perfect 17-0 season in 1972 and a Super Bowl victory. The Cleveland Browns of the old All-America Football Conference won the championship every year of the league's brief four-year existence, a four-year stretch in which the Browns went 47-4-3, including a perfect 14-0 in 1948. All of these teams were incredibly dominant, but none can match what the Franklin All-Stars of 1903 did. And in just a moment, we'll discuss the most dominant team in pro football history, at least according to Darren Hayes from the Pigskin Dispatch podcast and the author of the new book, The World's Greatest Pro Gridiron Team, the 1903 Franklin All-Stars. Before we get there, though, welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes. So glad you could join me for this terrific trip back in history to a team Very, very few know about. A few notes, Sports Forgotten Heroes is a proud member of the Sports History Network. Now, this is a portfolio of several sports history podcasts. 
check them out at sportshistorynetwork.com. And you can follow Sports Forgotten Heroes on Facebook and X. Hey, please give Sports Forgotten Heroes a like here, and if you can, a nice sentence or two as well. Also, don't forget, now you can watch Sports Forgotten Heroes on YouTube at Sports Forgotten Heroes, where I post shorts and the full-length podcasts on video with more information. Again, check it out on YouTube. That's at Sports Forgotten Heroes. Okay, so, the 1903 Franklin All-Stars. Now, football was a much different game back at the turn of the 20th century, but there was a group of men who sought to build something that no one had built before, the most dominant football team ever. Incredibly, they did it. And they won what was then billed as the World Series of Football to cap off a perfect 12-0 season in which Franklin outscored its opponent, now get this, 462 to nothing. That's right, they did not give up a single point the entire season. And here to tell us more about this incredible team is Darren Hayes from the Pigskin Dispatch Podcast, the world's greatest pro gridiron team, the 1903 Franklin All-Stars. Darren, welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes. I am so glad you could join. And I got to tell you, this is really exciting to have you here to talk about the Franklin All-Stars, the, the, what you perceive to be perhaps the greatest team ever. Welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes. Well, Warren, it's quite an honor. You know, I, I've been a fan of yours and uh, of the podcast for a long time. Even before I got into podcasting, you were one of my inspirations to want to talk about sports history. So I thank you for the invitation to to talk about this team. Well, awesome. I'm so glad you're here. You know, um, what you have done here, the amount of research that you put into this book, the 1903 Franklin All-Stars, what a great story. And listen, I got to start with this, Darren. As a Pittsburgh Steelers fan, for you to call a different team other than the Steelers teams the of the 70s, isn't that sort of sacrilegious? How well, is it with a straight face that you can call the 1903 Franklin All-Stars the greatest team of all time? Well, first of all, Warren, you know, it is hard to say that. But actually, Franklin is closer to my home than Pittsburgh is. I, I live in Erie, and Franklin's probably about halfway between Pittsburgh and Erie. It's about 50 <laughs> miles south of Erie. And Franklin, you know, is uh, it's not known for football right now. You know, it's, it, it's known for, it, it was in the oil region where mm-hmm. Edwin Drake had his mm-hmm. Drake's Follies well, the first commercial oil well. And that's what mm-hmm. really sprung up the area of Franklin, the, the team where this team is from. Their arch-rival, Oil City, uh, which is nine miles away from them, both were, became extremely wealthy, industrialist, oil-bearing towns. And uh, that's really where the story begins of, of this Franklin team. What 
prompted you, Darren, to take on such a mountain of a project like this? I mean, there's a lot of research and 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 record keeping, uncovering records from a team that played in, you know, at the turn of the century from the 1800s to the 1900s. I mean, that's a huge undertaking. And obviously, you know, you're not going to find everybody's first and last name. So I always find it fun when I when I read these types of books. I say, well, you know, it says Smith did this and Jones did that. And you're like, well, what was their first name? And you go, well, nobody really knew their first name back then. Well, first of all, it, it was actually kind of a pleasure. You know, first of all, it's it's in my community I live in. When when I officiated high school football, I officiated many times the Oil City Franklin high school games, and they were a rivalry, and it was kind of an interesting rivalry. You go down there to do their games. It was it was a lot of fun, a lot of excitement. The crowds really got into it because these these towns, at least in a high school rivalry, they don't like each other that way either. So I can imagine what it was at the professional level when you know businesses were in competition, and everything with each other. And so I I felt it was almost my obligation when a few years ago I was reading an old PFRA Coffin Corner article, and the name Franklin came up i was surprised i said franklin pennsylvania i, I know this place they had professional football and it's, <laughs> and it's the exact same thing when i talk to people that live in franklin now the born and raised in maybe third generation franklinites they said we had a professional football team so that was the, sort of the first interest of it and i said i said i'm probably the right guy for this i i'm into the pfra i i know you know I, and they actually had two articles on franklin in the 1980s so i found that was kind of interesting and you know, knowing the area and the region and where things were, uh, you know, as far as the locale of the team and its locale and Oil City's locale and where their stadiums were and things like that. So I thought that was it was kind of my mission to do. And then when I got into it, the Franklin newspaper, the Franklin Evening News, was a tremendous resource. That was probably where I got most of my information. And this is, you know, th think about this: is 1903. Three years before the forward pass was legalized in in, in any football, uh, you know, two years before Teddy Roosevelt called people into the Oval Office to try to fix football. So it, it's a rough game, and you know, with heated rivalries where team you know, the teams don't like each other, the people don't like each other, and I, I just thought it was my mission in life to. I said, you know, I got to tell this story, and as I got into it, and the news Franklin newspaper were calling it them the world's greatest team from the beginning at first i said okay it's a local paper they're giving them a home job you know saying okay these are the greatest team ever but as i got more and more into the story and i started looking at the facts and uh, taking and laying it out and comparing it to modern football i said you know this truly is the world's greatest professional football team it might be the greatest football team of any level uh when you get into the facts of it yeah, when you take a look at those stats, two quick things that I do want to uh, 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 let everybody know. PFRA, as you referred to, and the Coffin Corner, that's the newsletter of the Professional Football Researchers Association. And when you said that uh, Roosevelt brought football people into the office, it's because, man, back then, this was a violent game and there were people dying on the field, and Roosevelt said, I will outlaw this game if you folks do not clean it up, and obviously they did. Before we really start talking about 
the team itself. I wanted to ask you about the uniqueness of the book. Now, there's a hard copy of the book, but there's also an ebook version of the 1903 Franklin All Stars. And you put QR codes in there so people could find more information. Where did that idea come from? And where did you find the extra content that people can access? Well, uh, just like you, I read a lot of books. I read a lot of books on football, and some of them I get electronically. I, I buy as ebook, or I am given them as ebook. Some I get as hard copy, and there is some luxuries to both of them. I love holding a, a paper book in my hand because that's what we learn to read in having something in your hand and something tangible. But I also love that you can go into URLs and links and jump to a picture, jump to a video, jump to a podcast, jump to a, a blog post in an ebook. And I said, boy, why can't you do this almost like in a hybrid, you know, give that advantage, same advantage to people that have the hard copy book by using QR codes, which I use in my professional life in, in industrial management all the time. I said, boy, I could do this. I, I, you know, it's, it's, pretty easy for me. And I have the the means and the media to do it through my website and through the podcast to do it and a lot of good friends. Now, the extra content came from people that I associate with that uh, many of them you well know, uh, Ken Crippen of the Football Learning Academy, sure. uh, Joe Ziemba of When Football is Football, an author of multiple books, uh, especially Chicago football books. Chicago Cardinal football. Chicago Cardinal, Chicago Bears, right. And Timothy P. Brown, who is, I consider, probably the premier authority on early football at the college ranks, and especially rulings of footballarchaeology.com. So I, I asked these individuals, I said, hey, can you guys help me with some extra content? I explained to them what I wanted to do. I don't know if they fully understood what I wanted to do. And then when we did it, we did some recordings, and I showed them. They said, oh, okay, now I know what you want to do. So that's how we got the extra content, because it we wanted to focus the story on the Franklin team, but we also have to explain what football was in 1903 because it's a entirely different game than what the modern person is used to. Yeah. And, and that's where, that's where I'm going next. That's where I really want to start this to explore um, some of the origins of the game, how the game was played, the origins of the team. So, you know, during this time, um, 1901, 1902, 1903. Baseball was the big game. And if I understand correctly, this team, along with teams from other communities such as Oil City, um, Dunkirk, New York, Butler, Pennsylvania, they were born out of baseball. Um, what did football look like? Back in its early days, you know, um, the last of the 1800s, the beginning of the 1900s, what did football look like? Was it, was there a rugby connection to it? What was it like? It was probably resembled more what we would know as rugby than we know as, as modern day football. Um, you know, first of all, no forward passing. Many of the rules were still IFA rules, which were, very, very much adopted from the rugby union rules of Europe. And 
it, it was almost if in our modern eye, we would look at it as a short yardage play on every single play because it was some crazy formations. You didn't have to have seven offensive players on the line at the start of play. You could have the, the linemen running the ball, the tackles and the guards very often, even on the Franklin team were ball carriers, uh, which sounds very odd to us. And there was only three downs to go 10 yards, which was kind of a new concept of 10 yards. So it's a lot like Canadian football is today. And, and, you know, they, they had to do it by running the ball and uh, it was just brutal, you know, just a mass pile of, imagine the brotherly shove play that Philadelphia runs every single play. That's push, push. Yeah, that's really what you had. So it's just brutal and you know, men, you know, battling against men every single play and a mass of humanity and, uh, you know, the strongest survive. And that's uh, really a game of attrition is really what it was. You know, back then, too, there were, I believe there was a Canadian Football League at that time. And I think a lot of people would be surprised to learn that in actuality, the Canadian Football League has been around for a lot longer than the National Football League. And when it was in its origins, the Canadian Football League, it really was somewhat of a um, a game of rugby. How how were the games played? You know, what were the rules? You know, you talk about a specific play a couple of times called the line buck. Um, tell me um, what the game was. What, what was the game like? Uh, the line buck, what we would call it today is, you know, in football terms, it's like a, an a gap run. You know, it's 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 power football right off between the, the guard and the center. That's that's a, a normal line buck. Um, it could be the quarterback running it, but in Franklin's case, their quarterback did more end arounds. I guess we would call it. He would, you know, go around the end, so he was a little bit smaller in stature, a little speedy guy. But their big power runners, you know, Herman Kirkhoff, who was a an offensive tackle and defensive tackle, probably the lar- one of the largest men in football, who played a couple decades. He was a great runner on short yardage, and you know they they had a couple really good backs too. I mean, this is an all star team. They're called the Franklin All Stars for a reason because they are the stars of football in that era, and probably almost to the equivalent if you wanted to go out and hire the best team you could, and you said, "Hey, I'm going to take the the NFL All Pro team from last year and put them together and field a team for the upcoming year." That's really what it's the equivalent of. So. But yeah, they it was just power football, and the, the line bucks were, you know, just that. They you buck the line with the, your your big your big guys against their big guys, and just you know, power football. Who are some of the key um, uh, uh, personalities? Um, you know, you had Tech Matthews, uh, I believe Dave Prince. Who were some of these um, the main personalities, at least in the beginning? Before we get into this absolutely incredible team, and how did Prince find a guy like Tech Matthews? Well, I guess even before we talk about Dave Prince, who was the manager of the team, you got to talk about the the financiers of the team. And General Charles Miller and his brother, Joseph Sibley, who became rich oil men and also a in General Miller's case, he was had a lot to do with the railroad system between Pittsburgh, which 
controlled all the steel in New York City, which had all the finances in New York City trying to build all these giant buildings needed steel. So that railroad connection became extremely valuable. And anybody that controlled that would make a lot of money. So he he made a lot of money from that, a lot of money from the oil uh, lubricants for locomotives and things like that. So th this Sibley and Miller team were sort of the backbone of this. And they ended up hiring Dave Prince, who was a local uh, clothing merchant. He worked for his brothers who had a clothing store uh, there in town in Franklin and a couple other uh, franchises around the area uh, of other clothing stores. They, they hired him because he played baseball earlier in, at the, the end of the 19th century, a little bit for the Franklin football team, but really wasn't a, known as a football player, kind of a smallish uh, fella. Uh, but when Franklin really started coming powerful, they they wanted to compete with Oil City, who was bringing in outsiders in, instead of just all local boys playing. And so they needed a coach and a captain. So he got in contact after a couple of failed attempts of some other players. They got the right guy in Tech Matthews, who was a Washington and Jefferson uh, former star uh, fullback for them. And back in that day, fullbacks were the ones that were really the main ball carriers other than they weren't the blocking backs that we know them as today. They were the brute runners that you really needed in this uh, era of football. You know, it was such a different game. I mean, it, it, it's, it, it really, the resemblance of that game compared to the game we watch today, it's two different games from, from almost every aspect from the shape of the ball to the way the game uh, was played to, to even how, um, the crossover between collegiate, amateur, professional players. There was such a, it wasn't as, I'll, I'll use the term regulated as the game is today. Um, one of the other things I did want to ask you as we establish what the game was like, how were points scored during this time? Um, I see scores 18 to 11, 6 to 5, 11 to nothing, 148 to nothing. <laughs> um, how were points tallied? What was a touchdown worth? Uh, an extra point? Were there extra points? Were there field goals? How, how, how were points tallied back then? Well, first of all, right off the bat, touchdowns were worth five points at that time. And this was a slow evolution. Uh, just a few years earlier than that, field goals or goals from the field is what they called it. We we changed it into the word field goal. They were worth actually more than a touchdown back probably a decade earlier. So this is a slow evolution. So this is one of the first points where a touchdown is worth five. I believe a field goal was four points, uh, I, I believe. Extra points were an extra point, just like today with one point. No two-point conversions going on. So that's why you had some odd scoring and uh it, it actually when we get later in the show you'll see where that, that five points really it, it creates a really interesting uh factoid for proving how good this franklin team is how organized was all of this um how organized were the games was there a league how organized were the teams how, so yeah how organized was all of this well professional football 
started 1892. We we know that Pudge Heffelfinger down in Pittsburgh was the first paid football player, got $500 to, to play the game. And everybody else, I believe, on the field for, for the most part was amateur. So it was sort of a mixed bag. So this is only 11 years after a player is known to be paid. And you had the John Brailliers and that. But this is all happening in western Pennsylvania within 50 miles of where Franklin is. So it's a, it's a hotbed of professional football. But professional football is nowhere near what college football is. Now, college football is king all the way probably till the, the greatest game ever played in the late 1950s. That's maybe when professional football started to catch up. And so it, it was kind of looked down upon almost. So if you're a professional football player in that era, you know, people, unless you're from a small town like Franklin, where that's the only thing going, there's no universities in Franklin, they may, you know, look at you as saying, you know, we don't really want you to to play football. We we want to support our local college team. So the organization they were they were trying to organize. In fact, a year prior to uh, this uh, Franklin team, there was the original National Football League in 1902, and it was a derivative of baseball that wanted to capitalize on the popular game of football. So Connie Mack of the Philadelphia Athletics. He put together a team uh, with the, the ownership of the athletics. The Philadelphia Phillies had a football team they put together. Some of them even had the baseball players. Uh, Christy Mathewson was was playing ball. Um, you know, a, a couple other great players of that era were, were playing. And a third team in that original National Football League was a Pittsburgh team. They weren't sponsored by the, the Pirates at the time or the Alleghenies, as they may have been called then. But they were just called the, the Pittsburgh Stars. And this was sort of a, a star team of some of the Pittsburgh uh, associations, the cl- private clubs that started professional football, uh, you know, the Duquesne Country and Athletic Club, the Pittsburgh Athletic Club, Allegheny uh, Club, Jeanette, you know, some of those teams, they sort of, Dave Barry was one of, a real big figure in there. He put together this team of all-stars to compete with the Phillies and the athletics. So a three-team National Football League in 1902. And so that had a, a very good competitiveness to us. And they plot, planned on growing after that. They wanted to, to get maybe some of the other professional baseball teams to join in the New Yorks and, you know, some of those Chicago's and get some, you know, get it to be a rivalry like baseball is because baseball is doing great. And it, it uh, this actually the Franklin team sort of meddled and muddied up their waters and ruined their plans, I think of expanding that the original national football league how organized were the teams where did all the different players come from and how are they paid you know over over the course of time i've done several podcasts that uh uh, cover players and teams that date back to this time period and players might play for team a today and tomorrow they're playing for team b and next week they're on team c then they come back to team a it really was um, and they'd play under different names you know they would uh uh have fake names and you know uh, a, a guy would play in a professional game today and tomorrow he'd be lining up for a college team it it was very difficult you know and obviously we didn't have television back then and and the newspaper coverage like uh you know with pictures in it like there is today so you really didn't know but i'm interested to know how these teams were organized you know where did where did franklin find these players and how were the players paid 
did they were they even under contract? How did that work? Well, there there were contracts for players, but but you're right that there was a, a problem that even lasted for another almost thirty years after this. It was the late 1920s, 1930s before even the National Football League got this under control because they had the same problem, you know, especially in the early APFA and NFL players were jumping teams, you know, almost at will. And, uh, you know, you had like teams like the Buffalo All-Americans, which were in the NFL playing on Sunday games. Well, their players would jump down and go play in the original AFL, uh, go down and play for the Philadelphia Quakers or the Phoenix, uh, the uh, Unionville, uh, Phoenixville team of uh, Union Club of Phoenixville. That's the name of it uh, on Saturdays because Pennsylvania had the blue laws then. So you had that problem there too. So Franklin really didn't have that because they had so much, so much resource to them that they could pay their players and put them up in hotels. Uh, Joseph Sibley and General Miller owned a couple of hotels in town. Uh, they, you know, had a great connection in the railways. They could transport their players wherever they wanted to, and they had enough money to pay them and satisfy the Franklin players to, to stay there. So Franklin didn't have that, but there were teams that they, the opponents they played where you'd see the same players. Uh, Rude Waddell, we talk about baseball players. Rude Waddell played for two different teams against Franklin in 1903. So that's uh, you know, just some things that happened in that time, and they accepted it. What about, how the games were officiated. We're going to get into the team now, but one last thing, how were the games officiated? Well, they would have two officials at this period in time. They had a referee and an umpire and maybe some games, they may have some, some people on the sidelines, almost like a soccer, you know, game where saying if the game, the ball went out of bounds and where it went out, you know, they call them the lines people. Uh, and they had timekeepers and because there's no scoreboards, there's no electricity on the fields, no lights. Uh, so it's it's a an afternoon, you know, game matinee, you know, game, and uh, in all weather. And you know, the officials really had a tough job. They had 22 guys, but it was really everything was bottled up, sort of in the middle, so they could keep it in, in between them. It wasn't a wide open game like we know today, and passing didn't exist. But punning was a big element of the game. Yeah, you talk about that. Uh, punning, they had what was called um, a, a live punts, almost like our kickoffs today, how they're live when they hit the ground and the kicking team can recover. Well, that's the way punts were. So you had to field punts uh, so that the other team couldn't get, get advantage of. You punted short and the other team went down and got it, on, almost an onside punt, if you will. And I think that's, that's sort of what they called it at the time. And uh, so that was a live ball. So, and, and it was a game, it really was a game of field position because you even said in your book um, that there there was, you know, a team might even punt the ball on first down just because they thought that they could gain field position that way. Very common to do. If you're inside your own 20, the normal practice at that time was to punt the ball away on first down. One of the goals of the 1903 Franklin All-Stars, Franklin 11, um, was to play in the World Series of Football at Madison Square Garden in New York City. What qualified this to be the World Championship of Football? And was this actually a major goal for Franklin? 
Well, there was the first World Series, what we call we now call the World Series of Football. I don't believe they called it in the two years that it was played the World Series of Football. It was uh, started in 1902, a year prior. Uh, the Tom O'Rourke, who was the manager of Madison Square Garden at the time, wanted to you know, fill this venue at the holiday season. You know, he had, you know, everybody on Broadway had plays going on and they were, you know, those venues were getting filled. Well, he said, God, I got, we got the largest city in the country here. We need to get people in here to our venue. So what can we do? Well, they, they did things. They had some horse shows and things in early December, but they wanted to get a game of football into Madison Square Garden. So he put together as a multi-team tournament. Uh, Originally, he wanted that original NFL to send all three of their teams in and he would try to find three other teams that were really good up in New York. The Syracuse, the all Syracuse team was a very good team. Watertown, New York had a very good team at the time. And there were some New Jersey teams and it didn't really fall out that way for O'Rourke. And he ended up uh, having to get some Gaelic football teams playing in there and some military teams playing and had like two or three different tournaments. And it turned out right, but they, uh, Madison Square Garden lost a ton of money in 1902 on the original World Series of football. Well, Franklin didn't go into the 1903 season even thinking about the World Series of football. They had one objective, and that was to beat Oil City because Oil City had sort of pulled a fast one on them in the games that they played in 1902. Um, they were pretty much, like we said, local players on each side. And maybe one or two, what they would call coaches or star players that were outsiders. Tech Matthews being Franklin's representative in that. The rest were local boys. Oil City sort of had the same thing. Well, when Oil City and Franklin played the first time in 1902, uh, Oil City went and grabbed a couple extra ringers, including uh, Ben Roller, Doc Rollers. You know, was probably the best football player of that era. Uh, a, a great lineman. He and Lyman could run with the ball. He's a great runner, a great tackler, a dominant player, almost like an Aaron Donald of, of the, that era. So he brought a couple of his buddies up and they played against Franklin and Franklin held their own. They only lost the game six to five. So a week, less than a week later, they played on Thanksgiving day and it ended up being a zero, zero tie. The same two teams playing and Oil City wasn't satisfied with that, so they rescheduled a game for the Saturday after Thanksgiving. Well, in between there, on what we know as Black Friday now, the original National Football League had their championship game in Pittsburgh. The Philadelphia Athletics came and played the Pittsburgh Stars on Black Friday. Pittsburgh Stars won that game. But after the game, a representative of Oil City, uh, we believe it's their manager, uh, Dr. George Fry, went and hired the entire Philadelphia athletics team to come up and play the next day in Frank in Franklin against Franklin wearing oil city's colors. So two days later after playing to a zero zero tie, it's an entire different oil city roster coming out to play Franklin and they beat them 12, nothing, I believe was the, the final score of that. And money was involved in betting on both of those. Yeah. Okay. These are, All right. these are wealthy towns so Franklin is they're they're miffed. They're they're a little bit ticked off about this, and that's what really started the fuel of uh, building the 1903 team. Yeah. So so, um, they played three times in 1902, and this really, as you just said, was the impetus 
for creating this incredible team in 1903, team that you call, and when we get later on in the show, well, it's pretty hard to argue, possibly the greatest of all time. Um, Franklin really dominated every team they played except for Oil City. And by virtue of his success against every other team except for Oil City, there was only one thing on the mind of the fans of Franklin. They wanted to beat Oil City. And Prince and Charles Hamilton, members of the same social club, the nursery club, I think you you called it. Yes. Um, They got together and they devised this plan and they put it in motion, a couple of stumbling blocks along the way, um, to stop it, nothing to beat Oil City. What were the times like back then to do this? And, And why was this so important? Why was it so important to beat Oil City? Well, first of all, remember what we just said. These are two towns that are thriving on the same business of oil. So the civic, there's a lot of civic pride at stake here. There's also workers that are working in the oil fields. They want to show their allegiance to one of those two towns. I'm sure they competed for workers, much like businesses do today. So it, it, there was some civic pride that would... Uh, some bragging rights that maybe a worker may say, Hey, I don't want to play for those guys. They didn't, they didn't win the football game last year. So that was, that was part of it too. But the big thing was with general Charles Miller losing thousands of dollars and it's, it's estimated in thousands. We don't know how much he lost in that 1902 game that would, but we know that he went to Dave Prince, his manager and said, really to the point of, I really don't care how much it takes. I want a team put together that at all costs will beat Oil City. That was their main goal. If they only played one game in 1903, it would be against Oil City. That's what they built this team for. Well, they built one heck of a team. And by the way, I want to go back to one other thing. You mentioned it, betting, gambling. Bets were placed on these games by so many different people. And in many instances, the winnings were, were used to help pay the players, I guess, help to to fund these teams, to fund these games. Talk about the structure back then with gambling and why it was such a a big part of the game. And it's funny because it's still a big part of football. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. It ended up probably paying for some of the players because, you know, in this case, you had millionaires betting against millionaires. So they probably had the funds in their, their bank account, but they also wanted the teams to run and, and be profitable. And Franklin, even the 1903 team was definitely not profitable during the regular season. They even tried to sell advanced sale tickets and, you know, because they had to pay for teams to come in and play them. That's the way the games were structured back then. You didn't really make a schedule out, you know, before the season started, like we do know of today. Sometimes, and this lasted all the way into the early NFL, you sort of scheduled almost week by week and tried to fill your schedule. So in order for what the deal was back then is that the home team would pay for the travel expenses and 
uh, maybe a meal or if they had to stay overnight, the accommodations of the visiting team. So there's probably thousands of dollars. And then back in that time, that's probably, you know, tens of twenties of thousands of dollars in today's money. So a lot of communities did not want to have a team that was going to come and beat them to play. So Franklin was never invited to go anywhere to play. All their, their first 10 games were all played in Franklin. First of all, they had the money to invite teams to come down and play them, put them up in hotels, pay for their train transportation, which was the, the main uh, transport. And so the gambling was a lot of just on the side um, and way for the owners to try to get some money back that they were probably losing. They were already paying their own players and paying their accommodations. Now they had to pay for their guests as well. So that, that was some of the betting. And the visiting teams, their advantage was, hey, we're going to get paid to come play you, and maybe we can make some extra money for our, our teams and ourselves. And the players themselves were even known to be placing bets sort of, you know, on the side, uh, not not letting anybody else know what they were doing. But I'm sure that they were putting money into that, too, to try to make some extra bucks for themselves. And I want to make it perfectly clear to everybody listening and watching that um, we're not going to get into every single detail of the book. If we did, then there's no reason for Darren to go out and publish the book. So we are skimming the surface and we are, you know, a couple of sidebars in here to give everybody a flavor of what the game was like back then. Um, but I do want to go back to the team now. Uh, uh, how did Prince and Matthews and Hamilton go about assembling this 1903 roster of all-stars where did they find the talent how did how did these guys convince these these great football players to come to their town in franklin pennsylvania to come play for franklin and and what kind of money or guarantees or contract were the players given well, they first of all, they were put under contract, but there was uh, when we said that Oil City went down and hired the Philadelphia Athletics team to play on the Saturday after in 1902, after Thanksgiving in 1902, Dave Prince was also down in Pittsburgh at that game and also approached players of both the Pittsburgh Stars and the Philadelphia Athletics and some of the Philadelphia Phillies players that came to watch the game. This was the championship of their league being played. They, they were made offers to come play for Franklin for that particular game. Those players did not chose not to play for Franklin in that game. So Franklin was basically their team that they played with all season. But there was contacts made there and some, you know, the relationships were started. So that's where really Tech Matthews, Dave Prince used some of those relationships of meeting those folks in back in 1902 to start bringing players in. Also, there was a Washington and Jefferson connection of Tech Matthews. He, he was the star of the late uh, 1800s at Washington and Jefferson. So some of the guys he played with or played guys that played a couple years after them, like, you know, Schrantz and uh, Twister Steinberg, they were, they looked at him as a hero and they would get an opportunity to play with the great Tech Matthews. You know, that, they wanted to jump at that occasion too. And they, but they had contracts that they would be paid for the next two months and put up in hotels and have everything paid for them and play football for, for a very good team. 
That was their promise, and they they respected that, and that's why people came and played for Franklin in 1903. Who were some of the players that they did sign? Where did they find them? You know, from where where did they come? And you know, give me the top four or five players that they signed for Franklin in 1903. Well, probably the most famous one that maybe people have heard of, and he's come up a lot lately, is Blondie Wallace. Now, Blondie Wallace was a, a former uh, Penn Quaker, University of Pennsylvania Quaker player. He was a captain of their team a few years earlier, ended up playing for uh, a Philadelphia semi-professional team in 1901, was the captain of the Philadelphia Athletics in that original National Football League. Well, Blondie Wallace came and was a big part of the Franklin team. He also brought with him some other players from the Philadelphia Athletics uh, team, including uh, Doc Roller, who ended up playing at Madison Square Garden with it. But he was a, sort of a, a nemesis to Franklin the year prior with because he played for Royal City in that Royal City game. And he was sort of in the background as Royal City was contemplating putting a team together to face Franklin in 1903 to honor the bets that the, they had made before the season even started and had in bank a bank account. They had these you know great amounts of thousands of dollars bet on a game and put in an escrow in the bank. So he was he was out there. Uh, you know they ended up um, bringing you know, John John Jack Hayden, who was a, a great major league baseball player played for Connie Mack in the Philadelphia Athletics, played for the Athletics football team, played for W and, or I'm sorry, uh, the Penn Quakers, not W and J, Penn Quakers. And he ended up coming and being their quarterback. So that was, so Blondie Wallace brought in a, a few of his his cronies from Philadelphia. The the Pittsburgh connection, you know, some of the Pittsburgh stars that came up were, uh, you know, like Lynn Pop Sweet, who was probably the greatest center of that era. He came to sort of anchor that line. He brought uh, Tig McFarland, who was a another great W and J player, a Pittsburgh player, with him. Uh, Herman Kirkhoff, who uh, ended up playing for the Pittsburgh Stars a year prior, but he had been playing for quite a t- long time. He played out in Colorado for the Denver Athletic Association, then played a couple years in Chicago for some of their athletic clubs uh, before he went to Pittsburgh, and. It's all all of these gentlemen we're talking about played even after Franklin over in the mythical Ohio League and for Canton or Maslin uh, for some of those teams that sort of developed into the NFL. How did Prince and Matthews find these guys? You know, again, it wasn't like it is today. Maybe, maybe I'm not giving them enough credit. Were there newspaper articles did they see these people play earlier scouting reports how did they pinpoint these guys because again it wasn't as big as it is today or or information is readily available back then as it is today to go out and recruit players well like we said a lot of it they got to see them play in that original national football league in 1902 it was an easy train ride from franklin down to pittsburgh you know, that rail ran a couple times every day. So they could go down and they could watch them play there. You know, Tech Matthews played against some of these teams, some of these other players at other schools when he played for W&J. Um, the, some, and as they brought other players on, they said, hey, I know this guy. He, he, he'll probably come and play too. So they corresponded by mail uh, quite a bit. But, but Dave Prince started building this team months before the season started in October. This started back in the early spring 
And even before that, you know, with those relationships they were making, they were talking and uh, trying to put these teams together. So they had a good plan. And, but Peck Matthews, Blondie Wallace, and Dave Prince, they're, all their connections together, and it sort of spiderwebbed out from there. You know, as they talked to one person, this guy knew another guy who he could bring with them, and they knew that they were pretty good players that they, they brought on. And they put together one heck of a team. I mean, it, it, it it's incredible the statistics of of the nineteen oh three Franklin All Stars. What they did. Um, let me ask you this: How far in advance were games scheduled? And I have a reason I'm asking this. But um, it's not like you put together a schedule in September or August and played every week. You knew that on October 9th you were going to play in such and such a team. How were the games, how did the games come about? Well, originally they wanted to have a three-game series with Oil City in 1903. And they wanted to reserve Thanksgiving Day, the Saturday after, and I believe the Saturday prior to Thanksgiving as those three dates. So they sort of had those reserved, penciled in Oil City. Some of the other teams they wanted to play, you know, especially the early year uh, games, like they played the Youngstown Athletic Club, Youngstown, Ohio, which is not far away. They had that pre-scheduled. Uh, they wanted to pl- bring in the best teams. They didn't want to bring cupcakes in to, to play. They were paying these teams money. They wanted games because they wanted to prove that they were a good team. As they were, they wanted to build their team together so they could beat oil city. I mean, that was their goal right from the get go was beat oil city. Um, So they were trying to schedule the best teams they could. So they tried to schedule against the, the Jay Layless team, the East end of Pittsburgh. They wanted them to play and they sort of uh, East end knew that they might be in trouble playing Franklin. So they sort of kind of avoided, there was a couple of times it was scheduled and, they said, oh, no, no, we can't do that. We're not getting enough money. Or they'd have some excuse. Oh, we got to play at somebody else that day. So they ended up getting scheduled maybe a few days before they did play them. And that ended up being the Thanksgiving Day game uh, because Oil City could not play. So that was just days before. Um, another team that sort of filled the void of another Oil City game was Allegheny College, which was by nearby Meadville. That's the only college team that they played in 1903 because they wanted to avoid the college playing the college teams because really the colleges didn't want to play professionally because the AAU was just coming on and you sort of got points deducted for playing teams that had professionals on it. Uh, But locality, you know, Meadville and Franklin and Royal city are sort of like we said, 50 miles away from the nearest big cities. So they had to play who was around them. So the colleges had to do the same thing. So they didn't mind playing that game. They're finally their, uh, um, People at the colleges, the the professors, and that would allow them the Allegheny to play them. So they wanted to play Oil City. They wanted to, you know, this was a a revenge tour. Um, they wanted to play Oil City. They wanted to play him a couple of three times. And they get start. They got to assemble this team and get them cohesive and put them together so they could take on this great Oil City team. So they go out and they start playing their games. All preparation to play Oil City, to beat Oil City. They take on Youngstown Athletic Club. They beat them 74 to nothing. 
Then it's the Primrose Athletic Club, and they beat them 28 to nothing. Then it's Jamestown, New York, and they beat them 46 to nothing. Then Wheeling, West Virginia, 56 to nothing. Elwood, Pennsylvania, 33 to nothing. Team from Buffalo, 74 to nothing. This goes on and on. They are mauling everybody, and they don't give up points. Let's cut to the chase here, Darren. The assembly of this team, the 1903 Franklin 11, I don't know what they were called, the All-Stars, was all about beating Oil City. That That's true. The last game of the season was against the East End Athletic Association, and they had several players who had previously played on Oil City, but they were not Oil City. Franklin won this game 23 to nothing. We said they beat Youngstown, Primrose, Jamestown, Wheeling, Elwood City, Buffalo. I'll never get this one right. Sewickley. Sewickley. Sewickley, Syracuse, Allegheny, and then East End. What's missing? Oil City. Um, what happened? Where's Oil City? What happened? Well, Oil City knew that Franklin put together this team to beat them. You know, these towns are that close. They they know everybody's business in it. And their newspapers actually cross-reference the other newspapers daily. They said, hey, you know, Oil City's Derek was the, their name of their newspaper. They would say, hey, did you hear what the Franklin Evening News said about our, our team, you know, last night, whether it was baseball, football, whatever. So they, they were constantly in each other's business because they wanted to, they were that close. So Oil City was sort of sitting on the side saying, okay, let's see how this team progresses and see how good they are to see how good we have to build it. And in the meantime, they had contacted Doc Roller, their star player from the year before that helped them beat Franklin. They had him on the side saying, hey, stand by. You know, we're thinking about scheduling this team against Franklin, but you know, start building up some players, get some players together for us as, as we sort of observe what's going on here in Franklin. Well, as Franklin started scheduling, when you, you talked about Jamestown, New York, well, they beat them 46 to nothing, but Jamestown was undefeated at the time, coming in, pronouncing themselves as the best team in Western New York. A couple of weeks later, the Buffalo Niagara's, they're claiming to be the best team from Western New York. And they beat them handily, 74 to nothing. Uh, the Wheeling team claiming to be the best team in West Virginia. They, you know, all these teams are coming in claiming to be the best of their area. And, you know, Franklin really doesn't know. They're not in that area to, you know, football that well. They're, they're going by what they're reading and, and what they're hearing. Um, but Oil City's watching this saying, oh, my gosh, they just knocked off the best team in Western New York and the best team in Wheeling, best team in Ohio. These guys are pretty good. So they're telling Doc Roller, you better get really good guys to come in. So it it gets closer and closer. And they said, okay, we got to pull the trigger, you know, get off the pot here and get our team together. So they tell Roller, okay, here's how much money you have. He he went into a meeting that the Franklin people like uh, Dave Prince knew that Ben Roller was in town. And actually he went into Franklin, probably even trying to recruit some of the Franklin players to come play for Royal City, possibly. But he was in town. Some of the people in Franklin thought, 
hey, Doc Roller's going to come play for us. Uh, you know, but uh, that didn't, didn't happen at that point in time. But the Roller goes out and tries to get players, and everybody's he's telling them, hey, yeah, we want to get together because we want you to play against uh, the Franklin team. And the other good players around are saying, uh, not a chance. We're not playing them. And he got turned down by a lot of the rest of the good players that were left. So he had to sort of come back to the uh, officials in Oil City with his tail between his legs and said, hey, you know, here's all your money back. I can't, no money can put together a team to beat this Franklin team because nobody wants to play them that I can put together. And did, did, did Oil City actually have a team? Was Oil City actually playing games or was they, Oil City? They did at- not field a team at all in 1903. So, so does this put a damper on what Franklin actually set out to do? Forget about Madison Square Garden for a second. We're talking about Oil City here. Did this diminish Franklin's accomplishments? Oh, they, they were crushed. Probably about two weeks before Thanksgiving, when they sort of were realizing that Oil City wasn't going to play them, they were they were demolished, demoralized especially, you know, the, the people like General Charles Miller and Sibley and Prince and the community, they're like, oh my gosh, you know, we wanted to beat Oil City. That was our whole goal this year. You know, it's, it's like a failed mission. Yeah, we beat all these other teams, but it's empty. It's like Ohio State and Michigan saying we're not going to play you this year. Right, exactly. You don't get to play your rival and get the satisfaction of being your rival. So the next closest thing was that East End team that we talked about, that's really most of those East End players, that first game that was 0-0 on Thanksgiving Day that we played, they had East the East End team plus Doc Roller is who tied Franklin. So Franklin got that game scheduled finally after multiple times of East End canceling. They, they secured it. They had a contract with them. And that was sort of their satisfaction saying, okay, we're not, they're not wearing Royal City jerseys, but these are the guys that beat us last year, or gave us trouble last year. So we're going to put the, the scapegoat on them. We're going to take our frustration out on these guys because they really are Royal City. And Oil City patrons came up to the game and bet heavily on East End. So they knew they were getting some Royal City money out of this too in the gambling. So Madison Square Garden was not even in the picture at that point. Right. So. So Franklin does go out, as we said, they do beat East End 23 to nothing. I guess there's a tiny bit of satisfaction there. It's they're not Oil City. There's Oil City players on the team. So there's got to be some satisfaction. Um, they've just gone through the entire season undefeated 11 and 0 and have not given up a single point, not one point. They just smoke everybody. They roll over everybody. It's there's there's no competition. Now, how does Madison Square Garden and the World Championship of Football fit in here? How does how does Franklin end up in New York City? Well, the the rest of the country started noticing these Franklin scores and their reputation. Franklin didn't, from my research, didn't go out sort of seeking to to go out and. Pl- go beyond their borders and play with their, they they were probably, they figured East end was probably their last game since they couldn't play oil city, but there's a town called Watertown and they were the arch rivals of the all Syracuse team who on November 18th, Franklin had beaten 12 to nothing. All Syracuse won the original 
World Series of Football in 1902 at Madison Square Garden with the back. There's their all-star players from Syracuse and the backfield of Watertown. They took into that tournament and won the game. So Watertown was sort of, you know, not to be a pun, but the high watermark of football outside of Franklin. You know, because even the people in Syracuse said, wow, they're, they're pretty good. And Watertown had beat Syracuse earlier in the season. And I think they even split a couple games. But when, when, that, when that Syracuse game happened and Franklin beat them handily, Watertown started taking notice of that. So the manager of Watertown, a man by the name, last name of Wise, he ended up going and saying, I got to figure out a way to play these guys. He wouldn't accept Franklin's invitation to come down and play them. He didn't want to invite Franklin up to play in Watertown. He was a little bit leery of what would happen. So he said, okay, I got to make some money off of this. So he went to O'Rourke at Madison Square Garden and said, what if I sponsor the, this tournament that you had last year that you no longer want to do? What if I sponsor the tournament at your venue in December and invite the best teams in football? And O'Rourke was ecstatic. He said, sure, you know, we, we just want your money. Just pay for the venue. You can do whatever you want. So wise of the manager of watertown paid for and financed the tournament set up the prize money everything and did the invitations for the best teams in football at the time and franklin's one of those best teams so you have franklin and you have um the orange athletic club from new jersey and you also have watertown and um franklin beats Orange Athletic Club in game one, 12 to nothing. And then in the championship game against Watertown, it was a tough, difficult game. But Franklin does come out on top, 12 to nothing. And gosh darn it, Franklin finishes the season 13 and 0 and outscores the opposition, all these teams from all over saying that they're the best, they're the best, they're the best, Franklin outscores them 462 to nothing. They didn't give up a single point Mm -hmm. the whole year. This makes for a pretty good argument, Darren, that they are the greatest team ever. Tell us more. But let, let's take it one step further. That, that's a great accomplishment. But there, there's lots of teams that can claim, you know, especially college teams that claim nobody scored against them. There were some Yale teams in the 1880s that had nobody score against them. There's even some professional teams that can, can claim that went undefeated, unscored upon. But how about if I tell you only twice opponents went past midfield on Franklin and it wasn't on offensive plays. It was on Franklin fumbling the ball and the other team gaining possession. And they only each one of them only had one play on Franklin's side of the ball. Either the next play they fumbled it away, or Franklin gave them a loss of yardage that took them back beyond midfield. So think about that defensively. That's why defensively, definitely nobody's better than them ever in the history of professional football or college football that I've ever heard of. Yeah, you make a very compelling argument. Of course, you know this is back in 1903, and we're in, you know. In the 21st century now, I mean, game is different, but, you know, what Franklin did is 
absolutely incredible. I don't know if you can ever trace it trace a team in any single sport to accomplish what Franklin did. I mean, it's just, it's remarkable to even think about. And again, you're writing this from the perspective of a Pittsburgh Steelers fan. And those Steelers teams in the mid-70s had some incredible defense. You know, they won four out of, what was it, six Super Bowls. Um, I mean, they were just you know, four out of six years they won the Super Bowl. I mean, the, the 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 steel curtain and all that. But this team was utterly incredible. What happened afterwards? Why didn't they stay together? What happened after the 1903 season? Well, it's not exactly told to us, but it's presumed they didn't they couldn't accomplish anything more than they did. First of all, they the team itself did not make money. They probably broke even the ownership did from the gambling, especially up in New York City. They bet heavily against Watertown in that game, and Watertown bet heavily against them too because Watertown was trying to get the prize money that they had to pay out back too. So there was it was very lucrative up in New York City for them. Um, many of the newspapers up there said that uh, New York City may have to look to Franklin to help finance New York City's endeavors, you know, sort of tongue-in-cheek at the time. But that's but there was a lot of money flowing there. They also said, "What more can we accomplish by doing this?" You know, they basically dissolved the original National Football League by taking all its star players out of it. It, in essence, ended the dominance of Western Pennsylvania profession in professional football for a couple decades at least. They didn't even have a, a prominent team until 1933, when the Pittsburgh Pirates, who became the Pittsburgh Steelers, came out. Um, all those players migrated across the Ohio line into the Cantons and Maslins and Youngstowns and Akron's and, and those teams that ended up turning into the National Football League a few decades later. So they really didn't need to prove anything else. You know, we talked about their dominance on defense. They're also probably the most dominant team on offense. No forward pass. It's all running plays. And they at, touchdowns are worth only five points. And with that in mind, they scored 0.97 points per minute, almost a point a minute. And if you look back in history, there was a couple college teams called the point a minute teams. The 1902, 1903 Michigan Wolverines were called the point a minute teams. I factored in how many points they scored per minute. It was 0.71 points per minute is what the, the point-a-minute teams of Michigan did. Co-college at that same era was called a point-a-minute team. They scored like 0.7 points per minute. This is 0.97 points per minute. Touchdowns worth five points. If touchdowns are worth six points like they are today, they're over a point a minute. And we, we know exactly how many minutes their games were because it was recorded that well in the Franklin newspaper, every single game. Wow, Darren, you you really know the material, and I'm so glad you were able to take some time and talk to us about the uh, 1903 Franklin All-Stars, perhaps the greatest team of all time. Um, your knowledge of this team uh, speaks for itself, and I'm like I said, I'm so glad you could spend some time with us about uh, uh, Franklin to talk about Franklin. Um, if somebody's looking to get a hold of your book or the ebook, the physical book or the ebook, how do they do it? 
Well, the easiest way is if you want to go to pigskindispatch.com, go to our website. We have uh, links right on the front page to get you there. Uh, It's going to take you into the Amazon uh, world. That's where we're selling it exclusively on Amazon. Uh, Ebook, hardcover, and paperback are all there and available to order, order and uh, they'll mail it right to you. Darren, thank you so much for joining me on Sports Forgotten Heroes. I really enjoyed the conversation. And like I said, you're a wealth of knowledge when it comes to this. Well, Warren, thank you. It was quite an honor to to, to get to talk to you and to, to be on Sports Forgotten Heroes. So thank you. Thanks again to Darren. What great passion he has for football. And I think it really came through on today's show. And his thorough research for his book, the world's greatest pro gridiron team, the 1903 Franklin All-Stars. It is a terrific read. And if you are a fan of football, I encourage you to pick up a copy on Amazon or go to his website, pigskindispatch.com, where you can get that special ebook copy with all the different QR codes. Hey, thanks for joining me. And I'll see you next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes.